0: Hi, this is John Stonge, and welcome to the Dwell on These Things podcast. Today, we have a very special guest that I suspect that many of you are already familiar with. Our guest today is Dan Miller. Dan is the author of multiple books, including the very popular 48 Days to the Work and Life You Love. He's also the host of the 48 Days online radio show, an excellent podcast that I listen to regularly. I first heard of Dan on The Dave Ramsey Show. I'd always hear Dave recommending his book to callers who were trying to figure out their calling in life. And so eventually, and I'm trying to remember, I'm not sure exactly how many years ago I picked up his book, but I eventually picked up a copy of his book as well and loved it. And so if you've been trying to discern God's calling on your life, I think you're going to get a lot of value out of today's conversation. So without further delay, let's welcome Dan Miller to the show. Welcome, Dan.
1: Well, thank you, John. Delight to be your guest today.
0: It's We're grateful to have you with us today. And I wonder if you could just tell us, for starters here, a little bit more about yourself and maybe fill in the blanks of any interesting tidbits about your life and your work that I may have missed in that introduction.
1: Well, it goes back a ways at this point, but I grew up in a poor farming family. Now, my dad was bivocational because he pastored a little tiny church, and for that he received no salary, so we eked out a living as farmers. So it was that kind of dual role that I saw and grew up in. But I loved the value of what I learned in both of those environments, the work ethic and living on a farm. You, know, you learn a little bit about plumbing, a little bit about electrical, mechanical. Those things have continued to serve me well even today. But it also gave me the desire to see more, do more, go more, have more than what I was seeing there. And so books became my path to open those doors. So I've always been a voracious reader. That led to, you know, going to college, getting graduate degrees. And now I've had the privilege of working for people and figuring this thing out. What am I here for? What How has God gifted me? And what should that look like? Not on Sunday morning, but on Monday morning, mm-hmm. what should I be doing workwise? That's my space. I'm not a pastor, but, oh, I have so loved working with people to figure out what they do Monday through Friday. And that's been a delightful journey for now over 30 years.
0: That's great. Over 30 years doing that kind of alluded to this as you're just kind of sharing a little bit about the the early seasons of your life. I think that's great that your dad was a a pastor willing to serve in that context and be bivocational. I actually see that as a trend that many pastors, even in this era, uh, are starting to drift toward. But I wonder, when did you first discover that you were passionate about helping people discern God's vocational calling for their life?
1: It wasn't something that I figured out when I went to college or even for some time after that, I got my degrees are in clinical psychology, but I never really had a desire to be a traditional psychotherapist. It moves way too slowly for me. So I did entrepreneurial things. Going to college was really just a politically correct escape from the farm, frankly. Right. Uh, Yeah. So that's, that was my motivation. It wasn't to find a career I've never had a real job. I've always just done entrepreneurial kind of things. So I've seen opportunities everywhere. You know, I've been in used car sales and at RV rentals, health and fitness centers, a variety of things, online sales and all that. But it wasn't until I was in my early 40s where I had just gone through a real severe business crash and my church asked if I would be willing to teach a class on career life transitions. They were seeing a lot of people who in their maybe even forties and fifties were frustrated with what they were doing. And so I said, sure. So with my background, going to psychology, my own experience as an entrepreneur, started teaching the class. Well, and I thought we'd have people in there who were figuring out what to major in, in college, you know, the kids who just lost their job at Burger King, wondering how to get another job. We had a few of those, but primarily I did have those in their forties and fifties. And I had physicians and attorneys and dentists and pastors and engineers, you know, what are you guys doing here? And they're like, well, everybody sees us as successful and we're doing okay, but I don't think this is it. I think there's something more. I think I may be living somebody else's dream I think I may have ended up with these initials behind my name just because I had the academic ability to do it, but it's not really my heart's passion. And I found this space of working with people at that point in my life where I was being very introspective personally to figure this out, but then in teaching and walking through that process with other people. So it was then, so that's been some time ago, but it was in my early forties that I really figured this out myself.
0: So it was in the context of, of teaching that class at your church, offering that to people in your church that, that uh, you were able to help discern that. And you notice people latching onto that. Do you think that's a common thing, by the way, when, um, when, you know, people get to a certain spot in their career that they start scratching their head and thinking, am I really doing what I'm shaped to do?
1: It is. It's very common. And in, in our culture, We see education as something you have the ability to do. And as long as you have good ability to do it, you keep going. So if you graduate from Vanderbilt University and you have a 4.0, you're going to get recruited to medical school, dental school, pharmacology, all those those traditional kind of paths. And often kids choose one just because they have the academic ability and they get tuition reimbursement or something to go ahead and do that. And then all of a sudden they realize, I don't really care about this. I had the academic ability, but I don't want to live my life like this. And so I see a lot of people who have proven their ability to do what they do professionally, but they hate the life they've created. So there has to be a blend that involves more than just having the ability to do something. It has to blend your personality, your dreams, your passions, your values, all those things. When those come together, it's a very different experience.
0: Yeah, I think I, I, it it seems like you know as you're talking about some of the things that that uh, people really need to wrestle with. I think sometimes people don't really ask the lifestyle question that's going to go along with the vocation that they're training for or thinking about going into. They they don't realize the kind of impact that's going to have on your day to day life. I know in in my role as a pastor, I I mean it's it's not just a vocation; it's very much a lifestyle. I also remember years ago. When um, I I was interested in getting into radio kind of as a a side thing, and I had the opportunity to serve as a a radio host, and it was 90 minutes from where I lived, (laughs) and I agreed to do it. And so I started driving 90 minutes there and 90 minutes back and 90 minutes there and 90 minutes back, and it didn't last very long because I thought, all right, this is too much of a lifestyle cost and eventually I, I uh, started serving with the radio station that was about 15 minutes from where I lived. So that was certainly a, a much better lifestyle decision, but I, I'm hearing some of the things that you're saying here, you know, related to not just your vocation, but how does this impact the overall quality of your day-to-day life and what that looks
1: like? Absolutely. If somebody is an attorney, one of those respectable, admirable career paths, and then they get up and every day is filled with antagonism, controversy, conflict. I mean, a lot of people think, wow, I'm, I'm a kind, caring, compassionate person. I don't want to do this. <laughs> and they discover, oh, I want to walk away from that. So a lot of people have, I used to actually stock a little book titled Running from the Law, uh, <laughs> written by a lady who left that, and it's a very common path. Now, that's not to say there's anything wrong. We need good attorneys. We need good physicians. We need good dentists and all those things that I've mentioned. But if it's not a fit, then somebody, in fact, can really be an imposter. Yeah. I have exactly. a beautiful, beautiful painting right above where, where I'm looking here in my office. that was done by a young man, uh, 33 years old at the time, who came to me as a pastor. And he had had a real dramatic conversion experience in his own life. And he thought the most godly thing I could do is be a pastor. So he went to seminary, got ordained in his pastor of a little tiny church where they paid him peanuts, as you know, when you're starting out. And he was working as a desk clerk at a hotel overnight during the week, just to try to keep the lights on in his house. But frustrated with everything that he was doing, came in to see me and we talked for about 10 minutes. And I said, you know, who sold you this bill of goods? You know, to be a pastor. And he was taken back. He was like, Well, Dan, what could be more godly than doing this? And I said, Well, it's not godly for you. You're an imposter. You're trying to be something that you're not. Let's look at what it is where you experience joy in doing that. And he described going into a bedroom in their little rented house that they had where he would close the doors and put on Beethoven or Mozart, listen to music, and he'd paint. I'd never done anything with that, but that was his a real recognized area of joy and passion for him to paint. I had him quit everything he was doing, including pastoring the church. And for four years, he did faux finishes where he would use brushes, sponges, rags, create these dramatic effects on walls. Today, he doesn't do that anymore. He's a very successful artist. His work, all is the theme is music and his art. But the interesting thing about that. Not only is he making you know, 10 times the money he ever dreamed of making as a pastor, but he's also fulfilling his call to ministry, which is a tough kind of thing sometimes to get our head around. Well, being a pastor, you're called being anything else. No, you just, you missed a call. No, that's not true. God has a purpose for all of us. And with this young man, it was when he was doing his art. And as he relates, he says, now I have more opportunity for ministry than I ever did as a pastor. Then people knew what to expect of me. They knew what I was going to say. Now I am in people's beautiful homes. I'm the artist. They share their hurts, their fears, their vulnerabilities with me. I have way more opportunity to really fulfill ministry in this thing that I authentically found as a fit rather than trying to be something I was not. That's a dramatic example, but that's really common with what people are confronted with when they have to take a fresh look at what they're doing and why.
0: It's a powerful example, and I, I remember that story from your book. That's a, a story that you share in 48 Days to the Work and Life You Love, and um, I, I thought that was a, a great example of trying to help somebody discern their calling. I was actually talking last night with uh, my oldest son about your book, and uh, he's 18. He's a freshman in college, and he's, he's thinking about a variety of things, and he's certainly gifted in a variety of ways. And he thanked me for something. He he said, Dad, I appreciate the fact that just because you're a pastor, you have never pressured me to follow in your vocational footsteps, or just because you're called to be a pastor. I've never felt any pressure from you to follow that because he doesn't feel like that's his calling on his life to be a pastor. He's still trying to kind of nail it down. But I did think it was interesting that that's how he framed it in his mind. He said, I've never felt any pressure. And he actually said some of his friends had asked him, you know, does your dad expect you to be a pastor like he is. Uh-huh. And he said, no, he he never He specifically told me that he does not expect that of me, that he wants me to follow my calling. And it was a good uh, discussion, but it was prompted by the content of your book. I told him I was going to be talking to you today. And and it just led to a conversation about that. And I thought it was interesting to hear that from an 18 year old's perspective because everybody expects them to know exactly right when they hit 18, right when they start college, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? (laughs) And he's still working through that.
1: Well, and rightfully so. And that's a compliment to you as a dad to have him say that if he chooses that and fine. But a lot of people have been caught up in just the generational expectations. Dad did this, mom did this. So the expectation is there that I'll do that. You know, we, we often, reference Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go when he's old and not depart from it. By golly, we're going to cram this down their throat and then they're (laughs) going to continue doing it forever. Whereas you know better than I, but in the original translation of that, it really means more accurately train up a child in the way that he or she is bent. So our challenge as parents is to figure out how is our child bent? What is their unique passion, their ability, their talent? and then help them be excellent in doing that as their greatest vehicle for fulfilling God's call.
0: Yeah, that's, that's great. And you had mentioned that you got started in teaching this in the context of your local church. I, I think that's very proactive of uh, the church to, to be offering that. And it makes me wonder, how do you suppose the local church just in general could come alongside people maybe a little bit better to help them discern? God's
1: calling. Wow. You really opened up a big area (laughs) here, a hot potato with me, because here's the thing. You walk into a Christian bookstore, you're going to find things on spiritual life, spiritual growth, what we do on Sunday, how to be a Christian and all that. Try to find the area on career. Try to find the area that addresses the thing we spend more time in than anything else. It's dismissed as not important. You know what you do on Sunday morning is important. The rest of the week, yeah, that's just how. How do how could we possibly believe that? You know that the Jewish culture has have a word, avodah, from which we get both the words work and worship. To them, they were seamless. What I'm doing on Thursday morning tells more about my spirituality, my values, my beliefs than what I do for. 58 minutes on Sunday morning. And we have to address that. And churches, I think, are are waking up to that. You know, when we see people, especially with the volatility that we've seen in the last year here, people who are out of work or derailed from what they thought was going to be a long career and uncertain about what kind of things even make sense moving forward. We need to step into that space and help people understand how to take a fresh look at how God has gifted you as the basis then for moving into work that is, in fact, purposeful and profitable. And we can do that. It's not a secret. There's no unrevealed secrets. It's a process of looking inward. We've got a lot of benchmarks, a lot of clues along the way. That's why I like working with people who have had a little life experience because Mm -hmm. that life experience gives us more and more clarity. And that's why it's often the case that at 45 or 50, somebody says, you know what, I need to take a fresh look at this. And they redirect and go into something that is totally different.
0: I see that a lot. They do daily. Yeah, I see that a lot. I Yeah, there's just something about that season that, you know, that's the season that I'm sure many of our listeners are, are at right now, where you're kind of scratching your head thinking, you know, am I doing what the Lord's called me to do for this season of my life. It's worth wrestling with. And and sometimes, you know, that that could change. It could be something that the Lord has us do for a season. And then for a new season, he he may say, all right, I'm going to steer you in this direction. I'm going to open up doors in this direction. I wonder, even just as a, a local church pastor, what does it look like for a church to help people answer those questions? Because those are questions that come up and these are things that people are thinking about and uh, that's why i so appreciate the work you're doing and the content of your book because you're helping people try and figure that out and you're you're even offering a a biblical framework to do that you know where you're recognizing that this is not just about choosing a a, a career just to check a box off but you're answering the question what is god calling me to do and what has he designed me to do
1: yes and i think it probably is worth clarifying too john that That doesn't mean there's one thing. Sometimes we get caught up in that. There's one thing. If we go into the grocery store and we are in the cereal aisle, you know, we don't want to think, well, God wants me to have one flavor. No, it doesn't work like that. You can make a choice. If you decide what kind of, car to buy. We don't have a lot of guidance in the scripture about what kind of car to buy. We have a lot of freedom there. And the same thing is true with careers. There ought to be multiple paths of work that you could do that would be fulfilling. But at some point to really get any kind of traction or success, you do have to decide on what is this going to be. And it may be for a season. It may be for ten years or twenty years. Doesn't mean you make a decision uh, like your son at eighteen years old and okay, now I've made a decision that's going to guide my life forever. I, I had a, a gentleman uh, here a while ago who was forty-four, and one of the first things that he said in our conversation is he said, "I'm tired of living the life that was made by decisions when I was eighteen years old." Mm-hmm. He felt like that, and that that we sometimes feel an unrealistic pressure make those decisions. And now we can redirect, we can make new seasonal choices multiple times along the way. That's becoming more and more common. Even for people who do have those professional degrees, they can make dramatic changes as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's great counsel. And, and by the way, you talk about being uh, in uh, the grocery store and, and, and choosing the cereal. So that's, that was my family business when I was growing up.
1: My oh, really? father
0: owned a grocery store. <laughs> so I, I mentioned to my wife recently, I said, you know, it's been a long time since I've had Captain Crunch with Crunch Berries. Do you think we could buy some of that? So what what cereal would Dan Miller, if you weren't picking for health, if you were just picking yeah. for fun, what cereal would Dan Miller pick at the grocery Cheerios. store? Cheerios, just Cheerios. the regular kind, not the Honey Nut or anything like that?
1: Honey Nut. Oh, yeah, yeah
0: Honey Nut. All honey, right. nut
1: Cheerios. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I'm there. I'm good. All right. <laughs>
0: So, so here's a, here's kind of a, something I was wondering about, you know, even as we're talking about this today, what do you suppose, or or maybe I should say it this way, what kind of misconceptions or myths or faulty thinking do you think tends to hold people back from actually discovering the kind of work that they love?
1: Wow. This goes deep theologically because there is kind of an undercurrent in a lot of circles that if I do what God wants me to do, I'd be miserable and struggle. It would be a real sacrifice. It would be a cross to bear. We put all those kind of that terminology behind it. And there's really the expectation of that. When I was a kid, we used to have, you know, missionaries come to church every once in a while, and they'd share their story. And, you know, there was always that subtle pressure. If you really feel God's call, you're going to raise your hand and say, I'm going to go to Africa. That was my fear as a pastor's kid, that if I really submitted myself to God, he was going to send me to Africa, and I'd be miserable. Well, fortunately, in personal study and with the mentorship of some wonderful people, I figured out I would be miserable doing that. And I'd probably do a pretty poor job of doing that. What I do is in that sweet spot that blends talent, passion, and money. I love what I get to do mm-hmm. and I thrive in all those areas. It helps me thrive physically in the relationships that I have, certainly financially, and ways that I can then bless other people, bless to be a blessing. Mm-hmm. But some, I think people suspect, that, no, you know, I enjoy this, but certainly that can't be God because it doesn't seem right to enjoy something. Mm-hmm. Well, you and I are dads. We have children.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: How could we possibly want for our children that they would spend their lives doing something that made them miserable? It would be incomprehensible to think about it as a biological father. And I can't imagine our heavenly father being any different. If we're created in his image, I think he has the same feelings. He wants us to, to thrive, to prosper, do things that brings our heart joy. And so he gives us those indicators where we can look internally and figure out what should that look like? And then walk right into the work that brings us that kind of joy.
0: Yeah, that's good counsel. Very good counsel. I noticed, by the way, I have, I'm going to hold it up here because I know some will be joining us here on video. I noticed a change on the cover of the most recent edition of 48 days to the used to be called to the work you love. But there's a very noticeable change. You see the big blue circle there on, on as part of the title. It says now it now it's called 48 days to the work and life. You love so. This is the big update for the the twentieth anniversary edition, and I wonder if you could tell us what inspired that update. What kind of updates have you made to the book that inspired even that change to the name?
1: The theme has been there from the very beginning. That work is simply one tool. It's not the most important thing in our life. It's one tool for a successful life. So the theme has always been there that you need to look at success in seven different areas of your life. Work being just simply one of those. Mm-hmm. But it just came to me that I need to be more explicit about that. This really is about creating a life that you love. In fact, when I, when I work with people individually, I want them to identify what would an ideal life look like? Mm-hmm. Where would you be living? What would an ideal day look like? And then we back into what kind of a career will support that. Now, typically, in our culture, the reverse is done. We get a job and then we make our life work we're forced to live in a particular place, we're forced to have certain hours taken up, and we have to everything in our life comes secondary to that job. I really wanted to create a a move to see it differently, where we define the ideal life, and then the work that we do complements that life. So it was just a natural to that out. I was so excited about doing that in this 20th anniversary edition. I updated every five years. So it came out in 2000. I updated it in 2005, 2010, 15, and then 20, but in the 20th anniversary edition, 2020, 20th anniversary edition, everything just really fit there. Perfect. And 40 days to the work in life you love.
0: I thought that was a smart update when I saw that you had done that. And I'd heard you talk about that on your show as well. And I thought that's that makes sense because you're communicating something on a a deeper level when you say that it's just like just a a two word addition that helps people get a a greater glimpse of the message that you're trying to communicate in the book. And uh, one of the things that you even talk about in the book there that I think you were alluding to just now is this idea of a life plan. You talk about that in the book related to a life plan that incorporates things like skills and abilities, personal tendencies values, dreams, and passions. And uh, I wonder if you could maybe elaborate for us on how maybe we could create a life plan that incorporates traits like that.
1: Sure. The process of looking inward is what comes first. 85% of the process of having the confidence of proper direction in our career comes from looking inward first. We're too prone to just look at what's happening, who's hiring, what are the business trends out here? What are hot franchise opportunities or whatever? And we get Band-Aid solutions and then discover that it's long-term frustration. If we take that time, take a deep breath, and this doesn't mean, you know, six months to go on sabbatical somewhere or sit in a cabin on the woods. No, you can do this in three hours, but look inward and then identify what you mentioned there, your skills and abilities. What are the things not only that you have the ability to do, but to, that you enjoy doing? And then secondly, our personality traits. How do you relate to other people? What kind of environments are you most comfortable in? Introverted, extroverted, how do you manage? How do you sell, persuade? No good, bad, right or wrong about any of that. But if you understand it, it helps you frame what kind of environment you're going to thrive in. And then the third area being, what are those recurring dreams that you have? What is it that when you're doing it, time just flies by? So that little bit of introspection gives us a a pretty clear focus. And then knowing the focus, then we can say, what kind of work environment would allow me to blend these things I know about myself? That's where we can get creative. And you may not find it in the dictionary of occupational titles. That's a very limited list, Mm -hmm. but thus we find people today who are doing things that are really unusual And I profile. Some people and, multiple writings. But uh, there's a gentleman who, having come out of the army, was thinking what he could do then. And he was trained as a teacher, but he cringed at going back into the academic classroom because classrooms had changed in the time that he was in the military. And his wife asked him that great question, you know, Jim, if money were no object at all, what would you do? He said, I'd sit around the house, read old history books. Well, guess what? Today, he creates curriculum For Christian homeschoolers by reading content like the stories of G. A. Henty. And he brings those old stories to life in his real engaging audio products that are sold at homeschooling conventions. He's created, he generates three, four times the income that a teacher would, and it's just a little bit tangential to what we would think traditional teaching is. That's what people are doing today, having the opportunity to find those things that are just a little bit different. I profiled on my podcast for this week a young guy in Tokyo who rents himself out to do nothing. Now this <laughs> goes this is a real stretch but it gives you the idea the scope of things that are possible. He rents himself out $96 a session to just be with somebody as a companion. So he walks to the railroad station with somebody or he just goes for a walk in a park. It really it kind of touches on the idea that we know how isolated people are feeling right now. They want companionship. They're desperate for that. This guy has received over 3000 requests for his time. He stays booked and he advertises that he does nothing. He's not going to give his opinion. He's not going to try to coach or counsel. He just will take a walk with you or be with you when you have to go to the grocery store. How odd is that? But the variety of things that people are finding when they really look inward first can lead to something that's very, very unique.
0: Yeah, that's. It, can you imagine putting that down on your resume? I, I, what are you good at? I'm good at doing nothing. <laughs> I am the best in my space at doing nothing.
1: <laughs> and that young man had a college degree and had gotten a job and he just felt like it didn't fit. Right. He just didn't. He was trying to do something, wasn't really a fit. And in backing out of that, Doing the introspection came up with this thing that seems rather odd Very creative. and he's thriving and prospering. People have had their people that have rented him, you know, 10, 12 times because they like just that process.
0: Yeah. That's, do, you, do you think we're sometimes a little bit fearful of, of dreaming or even pursuing some of the things that are on our dream list?
1: Oh, I think most people cross those things off quickly gee, that's just a dream. That's just a wish. That's not realistic. We cross things off. That's not realistic. That's not practical. And we lose the very things that would bring us joy and the things where we would be having the very highest utilization of the gifts that God has given us. I think we circumvent that a lot by walking too quickly away from, well, it's just a dream.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you're right. If your pastor said, Dan, I'm going to be away this Sunday, uh, I'd like you to fill in for me, and I'd like you to share a message on a biblical perspective toward work, what do you think that message would sound like? Because i that's a subject you address in your book, and I, I wonder if you could give a, a picture for my listeners on, on what it would sound like if you delivered that message, a biblical perspective toward work.
1: Well, I, I would easily draw from you know, Proverbs 37, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. The desires of your heart are usually things that we don't connect with the work that we do. Well, that's, that's not realistic. I have to be practical. I have to just go do something that somebody will pay me for rather than really looking inward first. But, it, oh my, I could, I could take the next year of sermons.
0: <laughs> you'd, you'd ask him for the privilege to do a series. You're like, it can't yes. just be a Sunday. Take a month off. I, I oh. want to.
1: I want no to do a series. <laughs> yeah. You know, my favorite verse is Third John verse two. There's no chat, it's only one chapter, but right. John verse two. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospers. There's so much in it. Our soul can't prosper if we're doing work that we don't enjoy. There's no way. We can't be our best. It'll compromise everything about us if we're doing work that we don't enjoy. So there's such a natural pull from a scriptural standpoint to move into what we really enjoy. Mm -hmm. And then we've got all the things about, you know, serving our masters. Well, if that's a boss or doing things that inspire people be blessed to be a blessing. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can't serve well from an empty cup. A lot of people, you know, Christians spiritualize the idea of having nothing (laughs) of being miserable and having nothing. I mean, Oh my goodness, how did we get there? But in in the, the Jewish culture, there's a service at the end of what's called the have the Law service where the father stands up at the end of the meal and pours wine into a goblet that's on top of a saucer. It's the only time it's on top of a saucer in any ceremony that they have. But he pours wine in there and he pours wine in until the saucer is full and he continues pouring. It overflows symbolic of what he's saying is we're going to go into the workplace tomorrow and do what we do with such excellence that it fills our cup. Everything we need as a family. And there's an abundance from which we can serve and give generously. I love that image. Mm. Having a full cup means we're doing something that is fulfilling and profitable. And then we're able to really be the salt and light that we're called to be. Without that, we compromise, we compromise our witness. You know, if we're living a miserable life, that's not (laughs) attractive to other people. Mm -hmm. So this is not being greedy or selfish. It's to really be the best that we can be, Mm -hmm. honor God. I mean, if we display God's characteristics, that's attractive. God is generous, benevolent, all Mm -hmm. those things. Oh, yeah. Hey, I, I obviously I wouldn't have any trouble filling filling the spot.
0: I, I think no. you just preached it. You just gave us the highlight there. <laughs> That's great. Look, uh, by, by the way, last summer you had uh, an episode. I think it was in July. You had an episode of your podcast, and the title got my attention. It said, "Are you a pastor?" That was, oh. that was the, the title of your podcast, uh, episode. And I thought, oh, I, I, I'm definitely looking forward to listening to this episode. And so I was listening to it and I actually got a big kick out of hearing you mention, uh, you mentioned my friend Vincent Puglisi on that episode. I texted him. I said, Hey, Vincent, uh, Dan Miller, I didn't know that you and Vincent knew each other. And, uh, I, I said, Dan Miller referenced you on your, on his, uh, podcast, but I, I liked how, you creatively applied the concept of pastoring and shepherding to different vocations on that episode. I, I wonder, could you could you elaborate on that concept even just for our listeners if they haven't heard that already?
1: Sure. And it's still a Vincent and his family just visited us here in our new home a week ago.
0: Oh, that's great. I'm gonna see him next month. That's okay. Yeah.
1: Now They were they're down in Florida for a couple of months, and yep. so they came by and spent some time here. Delightful family. Yeah. In that episode, I was reflecting on the fact that somebody had asked me, are you a pastor? I was getting ready to speak to an organization. She was on part of the planning committee. And just in hearing that brief description of how we were going to be spending time together, she asked me, are you a pastor? And it really made me pause because I thought, what is it that people expect in a pastor? You know, it is somebody who listens, who encourages, who gently guides and instructs who will go deep with somebody and share in life together. And I thought, yeah, I want to have those characteristics. So I don't think we need to reserve that title necessarily just because somebody is behind a pulpit on Sunday morning. I want to have a pastor's heart. Mm-hmm. You know, we can see, you know, Jesus is the great shepherd. Mm-hmm. You know, the characteristics he displayed in doing that. Not necessarily being, again, in what we consider a church, but having those characteristics that draw people To us and they walk away feeling hopeful and encouraged. Yeah. I want to have those as an entrepreneur, as a for-profit entrepreneur, I want those characteristics in my life.
0: I I thought it was a great illustration. I appreciated that episode, but yeah, the title got my attention right away. Are you a pastor? (laughs) I was like, well, in fact, I am. (laughs) What's Dan going to say about this? (laughs) Um, a, A couple more questions for you before we finish up today. So with recent cultural developments and with all the economic challenges that we're facing right now, there's a lot of uncertainty, people shaking their heads, a lot of businesses uh, going through a very nervous time right now. And I would suspect that many of my listeners have probably gone through some pretty drastic changes in their employment over the past 10 months or so. So what kind of encouragement could you offer them? And maybe even what kind of myths about finding work could you help dispel for them?
1: One of the myths is that we make that decision at 18 years old and then it sets the stage for the next 40 years of our work. And then we get to gold watch and retire. Well, that's not going to happen in today's environment. You know, the average job is about 3.2 years in length and that's shortening as we speak. So the kids that are coming in, the 18 year olds that are coming in the workplace, the average time in a job. For millennials and millennials are getting older as well. They're they're no longer the young, but millennials, the average job is 13 months. And they're changing. So somebody coming in the workplace today is likely to have 14, 15 different jobs, and maybe even two or three major career redirections. So that's the first myth we have to get rid of. It's not going to be stationary. It's not going to be one decision and you don't have to think about it again. So we have to always be prepared to know really what do we have as marketable skills? What do we bring to the table that has value? What is our passion? Is that changing and developing? So this introspection process is ongoing. not uh, just one one time right now. One of the biggest myths that we need to get out of our minds is we are not going to go back to normal. We're not going to go back to the way things were. Too much has changed. There are retail establishments that will never be reopened. Mm will never make it work again. There are major shifts in how we shop, how we eat, how we dine out, how we go to church. I mean, I heard recently that the prediction is that 45% of people will not go back to church as it was. That's a startling statistic. What are we going to do? Mm -hmm. I've had pastors coming to me during the last year saying, I thought I was secure. What I thought was security was just an illusion. What is it that I can do that continues my heart for serving people for guiding and Mm -hmm. taking them forward? Well, some of those we've been able to position as coaches and other things that they've been able to go into. One thing we can be sure of, it's going to continue changing. Mm -hmm. I had the privilege of being at a luncheon recently with a futurist. And he was talking about the fact that the invention that has changed humanity more than anything else is electricity it's changed so much about how we live. Mm -hmm. He said artificial intelligence is going to have more impact on humanity than electricity did. He also said the decade we entered in 2020 enters a 10 year period where we're going to see more change than humanity has ever seen in a 10 year period. Hmm. There've been others who have predicted that, but those things mean what we do is going to be Developing. It's going to be evolving in ways that we could probably not even imagine. So, the clearer we can be about how God has uniquely gifted us, the more security we have, even if the application looks different moving forward. So, if someone goes from being a pastor to be an artist, or they go from being an attorney to driving a delivery truck, I mean, there's all kinds of redirections we can take. And that doesn't mean that we give up our calling. You know, one of the things that I clarify in 48 days is the distinctions between calling or vocation, career and job. We use those sometimes interchangeably, but they're very different. Vocation or calling is the big picture. That's you know how we want to be remembered, how we want to make a difference in the world. That's our purpose, our destiny, our mission, all those things. Career then is a subset. So in fact, if somebody wants to help reduce suffering and pain in the world, legitimate vocation, well, you could be a a sports trainer, you could be a massage therapist, you could be a physician, biochemist, you could be all kinds of things that would fulfill that. So, a lot of careers would be possible. Job is the smallest component. What are you doing daily that provides income to be a responsible provider for your family? But you can see in framing it that way changing a job doesn't change your vocation, changing a career doesn't change your vocation. If we go back and revisit your calling, I'm confident we could find things that you could do that would absolutely fulfill your calling, even if it didn't look like the things you're doing today as a pastor. Mm-hmm. So that's, yeah. we have to have that kind of framework. And then it gives us a confidence that even though things are not going to be like they were, they're not going to stay the same. We still have a sense of continuity. We've got a compass, so to speak, in terms of what we're going to be doing, even if the way we're spending our days changes.
0: Yeah. Any counsel you'd give to someone who's maybe feeling a a tug to transition from a more traditional form of employment into a more entrepreneurial direction?
1: If you have that potential, you'll regret it if you don't experiment with it. Now, saying that, that's not a call, John, for everybody to be an entrepreneur. I certainly don't propose that at all. Some people are wired to be really good team players, to be part of a team, or to be what we call an integrator or implementer where they're not the visionary, but they're really important as part of moving the team forward. They're going to have those jobs that's going to continue. But if you've got that urge to do something on your own, my encouragement is don't burn the bridges, spend 15 hours a week and use it strategically to experiment. But if you find that all of a sudden you're creating 50% of your typical income anyway, you probably are on track with something you could turn into a full-time venture. And I love those kind of opportunities.
0: I like that. Don't burn the bridge, experiment, and kind of see what doors open up there as you kind of test the waters a little bit. That's good counsel.
1: Absolutely.
0: Well, Dan, it has been very edifying and very encouraging to have you on the show today. I truly appreciate you taking out time for our listeners to share about just what the Lord's gifted you to do and what the Lord's gifted you to teach. Uh, again, if, if our listeners ha- haven't had the chance to read your book, 48 Days to the Work and Life You Love, I, I'd certainly encourage them to do that. In fact, you could visit 48days.com slash to see a special message there. Dan set up the site just to have a, a special page for listeners of the Dwell on These Things podcast. So if you go to 48 com slash John, J-O-H-N, you could see the book there. You could learn a little bit more about it and see what Dan is up to. Any other final thoughts, Dan, or anything else that you could share with our listeners before we finish?
1: Yeah, there, there's something that I like to share. That is, it's never too late to have a new beginning. You know, a lot of people feel like, well, I made the wrong decision. I majored in the wrong thing. You know, I got in the wrong career. In today's environment, it's never been easier to start over. And when I say start over, I hate to use that term because it implies going back to when you were a teenager. You know, you don't do that. You don't lose the value of life experience. But if you read it's never too late to realign or redirect. And a lot of people have the sense that, oh, my goodness, you know, I'm approaching retirement. no. I mean, 62 years old, what, that's a wonderful time to decide, okay, what do I want to now invest myself in? And you can often go into the most productive and fulfilling two decades of your life at that point. So just be assured it's not too late. No matter where you are, if you're 18 or 88, it's not too late to have a new beginning.
0: It's not too late to have a new beginning. That's a very biblical message. (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Again, uh, if you haven't checked out Dan's book, 48 Days to the Work and Life You Love, be sure to check it out. I think you're going to find it to be a true blessing. I've certainly enjoyed it. Dan, thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Oh, thank you, John. I love these conversations. I hope it shows, but I hope that we've been able to inspire and give hope and encouragement to your listeners as well.
0: I'm, I'm certain you have. Thank you, Dan.